You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Daniela Traub is the co-author of a paper that argues that a dual foreign policy strategy of Azerbaijan toward Israel explains the strengthening of the ties between the two states from 2011 to 2022 following Azerbaijan's decision to move to a knowledge-based economy. This innovative hypothesis may help to illuminate a new perspective on the growing development of ties between the Muslim world and Israel. I'm introducing Daniela Traub today, and uh, we are going to talk about Israel-Azerbaijan, the relations that are going on between two countries that perhaps a lot of people are not too well aware of. But I wanted to ask you before we get started, first I welcome you to the show. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you very much. How, how do you come to be focusing your interest uh, in particular on this relationship with Israel and Azerbaijan? First of all, thank you, David, for having me on your show. The relationship between, well, basically I'm actually researching um, knowledge-based economy, Muslim knowledge-based economies, which would be an oxyramon because you think that the Muslim states aren't that advanced. So part of my research, I also have the UAE and Morocco, and another state which I decided to focus on is Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is extremely interesting because it's not in the Middle East. It borders with Iran, yet we see very interesting processes actually occurring internally in that specific state. And then you have the relationship with Israel. And the relationship with Israel is interesting because we do have relations with Azerbaijan since 1992. Yet those relations were quite covered, limited, also in range, also in volume. They were more focused on government relations than people to people. And yet in the last few years, we've seen an increase in those relations. And that triggered the question for me of why. Why have we seen this uh, increase in relation and strengthening of ties between the two states? And that brought me to actually uh, research Azerbaijan because of that question. So you're saying that the turning point for Azerbaijan-Israel relations occurred around 1991-92, And I believe that in 1991, the declaration of the parliament of Azerbaijan restored the country's independence and Turkey became the first state to recognise it at the time. And Israel followed very quickly, recognising the independence of Azerbaijan. And this must have obviously uh, brought the favour in the eyes of uh, of Azerbaijan that Israel did recognise it uh, so quickly, so, so swiftly. Actually, Turkey was a big influencer in the relationship uh, between the two states in the beginning. In 1991, uh, Azerbaijan received its independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. What happened is that Turkey decided to introduce the two states, Israel and Azerbaijan, which brought to uh, the diplomatic uh, official diplomatic relations in 1992. It was a big influencer in those relationships, uh, in that in that specific relationship. Still, even though there were diplomatic relations, Israel opened an embassy in Azerbaijan, in Baku, but Azerbaijan didn't open an embassy in Tel Aviv. Not to say, obviously, not Jerusalem, but even in Tel Aviv. The opening of the embassy actually occurred only in 2022. So I'm actually saying that the relationship took 
a change in 2011. And the reason why I'm saying that is that Azerbaijan internally started moving to a knowledge-based economy. And a knowledge-based economy is an economy based on innovation, technology, and education. And it can't occur without one of those three. Now, another pillar of that economy is the trade and the exchange of knowledge, meaning knowledge has to come uh, externally into the state, go out of the state as well. And that makes the the global economy grow and increases competitiveness now increasing of um of competition between the state in the uh, economic uh, arena brings to the growth and prosperity of the uh, global arena and of the specific state now you need all those four pillars to actually make that economy succeed and that's the kind of economy we actually see in israel since uh, the 90s more towards 2000. now you need other states uh, that are a knowledge-based economy to help you increase your own knowledge-based economy. Therefore, Israel is even more attractive to Azerbaijan than other states that aren't knowledge-based. Now, this is only true since 2011. Before that, most of the relations between Israel and uh, Azerbaijan were more military-based cooperation. Now, there were a lot of corporations to do with uh, weapons and deals um, and, and, and arm trade, uh, especially because Azerbaijan was an, until uh, 2020 fighting uh, Armenia on the Nagorno-Karabakh area. That brought to a lot of the uh, intimacy in the relationship between the two uh, states because Azerbaijan needed uh, Israel uh, in that aspect. And it also needed uh, the favor of the U.S. and the Israeli lobby. And um, Israel needed the oil. And all this kind of relation is called a realist relationship, meaning that the relationship, according to the realism theory, says that states only cooperate in order to survive in an anarchic uh, system uh, where I would balance my power in front of a common enemy, such as, let's say, Iran or Armenia, in order to gain power uh, and survive uh, in front of a threat. Now, in that kind of relationship, the main corporation is a military corporation or uh, oil-based uh, corporation. And it, it's a, it's a usually a win-lose situation in those uh, types of corporation, or that the other side wins or that I win. It can't be both. Now, in the recent cooperation with Israel, it, it slightly added another aspect. It didn't delete the realist cooperation that obviously is still in place and is also increasing, but it also added the element of a neoliberal cooperation. And, and what do I mean by that? I actually mean that in a neoliberal corporation, you actually you you need to cooperate with another state in order in order to bring mutual gain to another, and that also creates interdependence between those two states. The cooperation can be in international organizations, can be trade, and usually it's attributed to democracies. Yet we see an extremely interesting phenomenon in the last few years, in which autocratic systems and states such as China, such as Russia before the war, were taking the neoliberal corporation, especially in the technology um, aspect, 
and draining the Western values out of it, draining human rights, women uh, rights, and so on, and just using the system of, of economic cooperation between those uh, two states, then we can see this is actually also happening with other Muslim states, and not only China or Russia. We can see this in the UAE, and we can see this also in Azerbaijan, where you choose many states that are knowledge-based uh, in order to increase your own economy and achieve growth and prosperity so that your knowledge will leak out and their knowledge will leak back in. Different to an oil-based economy, uh, which Azerbaijan was and also the UAE, and still, when you try to move to a knowledge-based economy, it has to come from the people meaning the government has to direct and invest, but the people are the ones that have to do that transformation through education. So it's not only the top, the elites, it's the entire population that has to move so that this economy will actually be successful. And the UAE, uh, for example, decided to do this in one of the plans, Vision 2020 and Vision uh, 2030. They tried to do this because uh, they understood that an oil-based economy can't be sustainable forever. The oil will run out and the oil is also influenced by world world movements and, and, and occurrences. So they needed something that is for the long term. And this is happening throughout the different Muslim worlds, also in Morocco, also in the UAE, and also in Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan in 2011 launches the first vision plan of moving the economy to a knowledge-based economy. And this influences also their foreign policy from mostly based realist cooperation to a more combined foreign policy of a neoliberal and a realist cooperation uh, with states knowledge-based economy space, states, and Israel among those specific states. So this is what you've expounded in this paper, a dual foreign policy strategy. And yes. uh, you've, uh, you've sent me a, a summary of that, but is that going to be the body of your PhD? Well, in my PhD, I'm actually uh, researching the three different countries, Morocco, UAE, and Azerbaijan. I'm focusing on each of their specific economies and the internal move that's occurring in those states and the influence of that move towards a knowledge-based economy on the foreign policy of those specific states. You actually can see in Azerbaijan a very interesting thing. Not only do they launch several plans of education and science and the, the merging between them to get to that uh, specific goal, but also uh, you see laws laws that they actually pass in parliament so that they will move to such an economy, um, investing in ed education that will be more scientific and the connection between the two, and also reconstruction of ministries, creating, let's say, for example, in 2013, we, they create the uh, Higher Technology and Communication Office, uh, which is supposed to specifically deal with that. They also increase the budget in all elements of uh, knowledge-based uh, such as education, technologies, the foreign uh, ministry. So all the budgets since uh, 2011 have increased dramatically of the investment of the, of the government. And if you analyze, you can actually see a very interesting trade. 
I created a table checking the increase in measurements. If it's um, scientific R&D expenditure, education expenditure, protection of uh, intellectual property rights and share of ICT goods and uh, export and import. And you see that between 1992 and 2011, we have an decrease in most of the criteria, but from 2011 to 2020, we have an increase in all those criteria. So you can see that the government is trying to invest as much as possible to move that to, to that direction. Are they there yet? No, they far from being a knowledge-based economy, but they are definitely trying to achieve that uh, type of economy. And that in order to, to, to achieve that, you need the cooperation with other knowledge-based especially Israel, that country can contribute a lot, not only in military. And that's what we actually see since 2011. We see many more diplomatic visits also in the areas of agrotech and health tech. We also see the decision before the, the decision to open an embassy, we, we see the decision to open a trade office in Israel between Azerbaijan and the two, the two states. We also see uh, suddenly corporations with institutions such as the Technion between universities there, governmental and uh, Israeli academic institutions, because suddenly that becomes important. They need the knowledge and they need the cooperation in order to achieve their own growth and prosperity. And when you were talking earlier, Daniela, you referred to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Now, yes. I'm not really uh, au fait with the status of this conflict, and I don't know who uh, who is right uh, in this, but obviously Israel has seen it to be expedient to side with Azerbaijan, and mm -hmm. uh, the Armenians have not got much sympathy from Israel over the decades, as we know back in the early uh, 20th century, the Armenian genocide, Israel never gave any real uh, support or empathy for that uh, genocide because of it would uh, have enraged Turkey. Not only Turkey, it would have enraged also Azerbaijan, which is that triangle that uh, in the last few years has been um, even closer. It did go a bit distance with the relations between Israel and Turkey, but now it's uh, starting to, uh, there's a reapproachment there. I also won't touch upon who's right in this conflict, but I, I will say that Israel contributed a lot to the uh, Azeri struggle there. Um, most of the um, equipment and weapons are from Israel. Between 1992 and 2010, the arm deals, according to CIPRI, between Israel and Azerbaijan was 28 million. From uh, 2011 and to 2020, the arm deals are 860 million. So Can there's just, a jump. Uh, but, in, but in for a moment, just to give another perspective on that, Yes, I've got figures from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Mm -hmm. So yep. Israel accounted for 27% of Azerbaijan's yep. major arms imports from 2011 to 2020. And from 2016 yep. to 2020, Israel accounted for 69% of Azerbaijan's yes. major arms imports. So Israel is by far the most significant uh, arms supplier Absolutely. to Azerbaijan. Absolutely, that's exactly you. You you uh, you stated uh, Cipri that that the Stockholm Institute. Yes, we can also see that there is a decrease in arm deals 
between Azerbaijan and other Western countries, but an increase with the Israeli technology. And you can see that most of the drones used in the last uh, 2020 round between uh, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan were Israeli. People are saying that the reason that Azerbaijan won was Israeli technology and training. So that does deal with the, the realist perspective of uh, the relationship. We can also see that Azerbaijan does have a common border with Iran, which is important to Israel when it comes to its specific operations that may or may not be conducted in the area. That's also an important part for, for Israel in that specific relationship. Yes, Israel contributed a lot to Azerbaijan. And I think that that would be also one of the reasons why Armenia is not very happy with uh, what's happening between it and Israel. Obviously, Israel wants the most states to be its friend, but it does see the world in 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 a way. And, and also Netanyahu said that about himself, that he is a realist. He needs to survive in the system. Therefore, he will cooperate with who gives him the most uh, options of survival and strengthens its state. It won't say no to states uh, for peace or for cooperation, yet it will choose the states that give it an advantage. And if Iran, in the eyes of Netanyahu, is the main threat to the state of Israel, it will go with a state that can help it against uh, Iran. Yeah, understood. And we've seen uh, in 2020 the signing of the Abraham Accords, which brought a huge diplomatic normalisation between Israel, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan and the United Arab Emirates followed by the exchange of Israeli and Turkish ambassadors two years later. Seems like uh, the president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, uh, suddenly saw uh, things were going on and he felt it was about time that he should follow suit. So this has been another major uh, factor that's driving uh, the warming of relations between Israel and Azerbaijan. Well, I do think it does have an effect, but I will claim that it actually started before and that it contributed and it helped push him there. But you could see that the tightening of relations actually started in 2011, when there was the internal shift within Azerbaijan. It did help. It's nicer to know that you're in the right club. But it's also this tightening of relationship is something that is crucial for Azerbaijan to achieve its, its own goals. Therefore, you can see already that there are many more diplomatic visits and many more agreements, also on the weapons side, but also on other technological aspects and education already before uh, the Abraham Accords. Tell me, how many flights are there at the moment between Baku and Tel Aviv? I actually have no idea. Uh, but um, I do think that that aspect isn't strong enough. It's the same with the UAE. While there are so many Israelis flying to the UAE, there aren't a lot of uh, Emiratis actually coming to Israel. Uh, and that is a problem because when you want to normalize relations, uh, if you want to strengthen the ties between states, you need the people to be close. Because if it stays on the government level, then you see what we have in Jordan and we see what we have in Egypt, which isn't a war and peace. It's very cold um, and even sometimes not possible to really go for those states uh, in, in, a in a security sense. So with Azerbaijan, there should be much more of that. But the Office of Economy that they decided on opening is actually called the um, Office of Trade and uh, uh, Tourism. 
because they understand that they do need to increase also that aspect in order for the uh, uh, tightening of the uh, the strengthening of the ties to actually be valid and long-standing. Yeah, we did see uh, the foreign minister uh, visit Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, in late March, and uh, he had talks yes. with his Israeli counterpart, Eli Cohen, there, and they uh, inaugurated the, the opening of the embassy at that time. So things are certainly happening. What I wanted to draw attention to now is interesting side issue, sideshow going on. Uh, Israeli intelligence helps collect a lot of information about what they view as extremist organisations in the region, and one of these groups is Hizbut Tahrir, which seeks the annihilation of the State of Israel, threatens both Jerusalem and Baku. Hizbut Tahrir is suspected of having several hundred members in Azerbaijan, and several of its members were arrested and prosecuted by Azerbaijani authorities. Now, I'm bringing this up because uh, some of my listeners uh, will be aware of Hizbut Tahrir. They're an international pan-Islamist and fundamentalist political organisation. They're considered a radical Islamic group, and they've come under scrutiny from the Australian government. They're operating relatively freely in Australia, but in a Muslim country like Azerbaijan, they're under the hammer. I think that many uh, Muslim states actually have this uh, problem. Uh, Azerbaijan is a Shiite state. It obviously does have extremism internally. So does Israel. I believe that Azerbaijan has much more to gain from the relations with Israel than of letting this kind of organization actually exist, especially when there's an extremely strong Jewish community in Azerbaijan. That community is has always been protected. There was not a lot of anti-Semitism in Azerbaijan. And that also is important to Azerbaijan when they speak about the relations with Israel, they speak about the relations with the Jews. Obviously, also what we spoke about with the arm deals and what Azerbaijan is actually gaining, not only on the military aspect, but also on the technology and knowledge um, uh, aspect, is much more valuable than the continuation of this organization. And I see that, and I think that that's also one of the reasons why they are trying to fight this organization as much as possible. Now, this isn't only a threat that is threatening Azerbaijan. The specific organization, yes, but uh, we can see it in parallel to, to the U.S. They also, they in, in the Gulf region where there's, um, uh, there is terror, terrorism exists, and they invest so much in trying to uh, decrease it, eliminate it, uh, and ban it, because they understand, as for Azerbaijan, that stability is key for growth and prosperity. And they can't bring their nations to where they want to go if they let this prosper in their own states because they saw what happened in Syria. They don't want to be that. They want to be stable. They want to be considered successful and they want to bring prosperity to their states. And terrorism, if you have that in, inside your state, you, you just you just can't get anywhere. So I believe that Azerbaijan has uh, a lot of interest in actually abolishing that internally. Now, Azerbaijan has Close links with Turkey, as you've been telling us. Now, with uh, the, with Israel-Turkey relations coming on the improve lately, this is no doubt going to have further positive repercussions on Azerbaijan's relations with Israel, would you say? Yeah, I agree. Um, Azerbaijan and Turkey actually refer to themselves as um, two states, one nation. Uh, they believe they're very similar. The fact that Israel and Turkey drifted apart in the 
last few years wasn't very beneficial for Azerbaijan yet. Because Azerbaijan is its own state and has its own interests and goals, they continued the relationship uh, with Israel, even though one of their closest allies didn't. I do believe that in the next few years, now we see that uh, Erdogan is, is continuing, he's actually strengthening its, tie, its ties with Israel, maybe after the, the compensation on the Marmara that Israel paid, um, but also for internal reasons um, of uh, Turkey itself, which I'm not an expert on Turkey, so I won't elaborate on that. Now we can actually see maybe a triangle and a very interesting triangle between Azerbaijan, Turkey and Israel that will actually help the prosperity of, of all three states and bring to very interesting uh, corporations in the future. Well, it's been really uh, fascinating talking to you about this subject. It's uh, not an area of the world that uh, I'm terribly familiar with. And I think you've been illuminating uh, us with a, a new perspective on the strengthening of ties uh, between a Muslim state and Israel, which is a, a key uh, indicator of uh, what uh, the future may hold uh, for Israel in the region. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure being on your show. In my interview with Daniela Traub, she referred to the fact that there is a very strong Jewish community in Azerbaijan, and one part of that community comprises the mountain Jews, as they are called. Ayan Babakishayeva is an Azerbaijani singer and actress who was born in a family of mountain Jews and she sings in the Juhuri tradition, Juhuri being the traditional language of the mountain Jews of the Eastern Caucasus Mountains, which today is mainly spoken in Israel. Let's listen to her singing a Juhuri song of Azerbaijan. Yeah, 
Moi Ver, also known as Moshe Raviv, was born in 1904 in Vilnius, Lithuania, as Moses Vorobechik. He initially studied painting. In his early 20s, he matriculated at the Bauhaus, taking courses with Paul Clay, Vasily Kadinsky and Josef Elbers, and left from there to attend the École Photo One in Paris. In 1932, Raviv was sent by the weekly La Vie Parisienne to mandatory Palestine as a photo reporter, immigrating two years later and founding the artist colony in Svat. He designed many posters that were used to promote Zionism. After 1950, he focused more on painting than photography and lived in Svat until his death in 1995. I'm really delighted today to welcome Dr. Nissan Perez to the Israel Connection. And we're talking about an extraordinary artist, uh, Moi Ver, also known as Moshe Raviv, and originally Moshe Vorobechik. Now, uh, you're the man to talk about this, this great artist. And the reason I'm talking with you today is because I had the great pleasure only two months ago of coming across an exhibition at the Pompidou Centre where I saw the work of uh, Moivet for the first time and became aware of him for the very first time. And I think uh, for our listeners today, this might be a revelation to hear what uh, you're going to be telling us today. So give us a bit of an idea about uh, this figure, Moivet, and why we should be talking about him. Thank you, David. First of all, you are not the only one to just discover Moivet. For a long time, for decades actually, he totally vanished from the radar of the art world for a very simple reason, that at some point he moved to Palestine in 1934, he changed his name, and so he disappeared. But if we go back to uh, his uh, personal history uh, briefly, he was born in Vilnius, or Vilna, as they called it at the time, uh, the Jerusalem of uh, Lithuania, in 1904, to a traditional religious uh, Jewish family. He had his uh, education in the first Hebrew school ever that was opened outside Palestine. He was religious, he was Zionist by formation. He spoke already Hebrew, Polish, Russian, French, and German. His education was really uh, broad. He acted according to the spirit of the period. We are speaking about uh, 1915, 1920, 25, the peak of modernist movement, especially in Europe. Modernists at the time actually tried and did, in fact, reject all the traditional and accepted values of religion and family, the traditional art conventions, in order to build or rebuild a new world according to their to their understanding of what was happening in the art world and in the social political areas in general. Moiver, who already Moshe Borovechik, as he was called at the time at least, already studied art and was a painter applied to the Bauhaus and was immediately accepted. He left everything behind him in Lithuania, moved to the Bauhaus in Germany, studied with the best possible teachers like Josef Albers, Paul Klee, of course, and especially Moholinaj, who was really a key figure 
and who also introduced photography to the Bauhaus. After two and a half years at the Bauhaus, as an accomplished artist, he moved to Paris, which was at the time really the core of the modernist movement worldwide, where all artists from all over the world, from America, from Spain, from Eastern Europe, were really running to be there and to create. He met also many, many of the very important artists at the time, and they were all frequenting the same cafe in Montparnasse in Paris. He continued photography rather than painting or drawing. And at the time, he was really considered as one of the most important photographers active in Paris. And especially his first two books, one of them was about the ghetto lane in Vilna. The second one was about Paris. The first one was about the Jewish life in the Vilna ghetto. The second one was already more international vision, a modernist vision of Paris as he conceived it. Beyond that, he was working also for all many magazines. He was already planning a third book that was never published because in the early 30s, because of the situation in Europe, especially what happened in 1933 in Germany, that's when also he decided that in 1934, he would leave Europe and move to Palestine. He was already once in Palestine in 1932, two years previous, because he was sent by one of the magazines to make a documentary, a photographic project in Palestine. Yes. I think he was also a very intelligent man. I never met him, unfortunately. The issue is he must have been a very intelligent person, and very early he understood what was happening in Europe. And that was the reason he uh, decided to move to Palestine. When the Holocaust came, his entire family disappeared. Two sisters and brother, his parents, grandparents, everybody was killed. He was the sole survivor. And his family, yeah. Your son, you are the keeper of uh, what's called the Moivir Archive. Right. This is something that you came across very fortuitously. Suddenly a suitcase with so many negatives of, of his uh, that were discovered by his son and granddaughter landed on your doorstep. When, when did right. this happen? Well, this happened about six years ago, because I started working as a director of the archive about 10 years ago. We were all uh, with uh, his, his son and two granddaughters. We were trying to put some order in uh, the archive and uh, computerized everything, can all the photographs and so on. But we only had paper prints. We were all uh, wondering what happened to the negatives because he was a very meticulous person. So we were sure that they must be somewhere because the, the archive were also scattered into three different places. And until uh, one day, uh, one of the granddaughters found an old, dusty, dirty suitcase and when she opened it, she called me immediately. We almost fainted when we looked at it. All his negatives were in this suitcase in tin biscuit boxes. That was, that was really a miracle. So from this point on, we started scanning all the negatives 
about 12,000 negatives that we have already on computer now, few more that we are still uh, scanning. It was really a miraculous thing that happened. Even better part of it was that because they were sealed in those boxes, notwithstanding the humidity in Tel Aviv, they were in almost perfect condition. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, Doubt, as you were saying, the turning point in Moivert's life was when he was sent by this weekly La Vie Parisienne to Mandatory Palestine as a photo reporter. And right. that must have influenced him because only two years later, as you say, he decided to emigrate to Palestine. Now, when he emigrated, can you perhaps tell us um, what his focus was in his photographic work? He he continued his work. Of course, his pinnacle, as you say, was when he was in Paris, but nonetheless, he continued his work. But what did he diversify his work into? Right. What, what was he doing when he came to Palestine? His moving to Palestine was because he was exposed to the Zionist idea. He already, early in his life, while he was still in high school, he met Zalman Schneor, who later on also wrote the introduction to his uh, Vilnius book. Uh, there was already a connection that, that was created very early in his life. But then, in 1934, he took everything with him and moved to Tel Aviv. In 1934, Tel Aviv was already uh, the first Jewish city uh, in Palestine. He continued taking photographs of Palestine, of the life of the country, and also he worked for all the national institutions that the uh, Jewish agency, the Karen Kayeme, the Karen Ayesod, and also for the Histadrut, the uh, Workers' Association, and also for some of the political parties. He created photographs. He used those photographs in the publications and the posters, advertising posters he created for those institutions. The mythological Aleph of the party was created by him in the very early poster for the elections that were held from the 1930s on in the country. He also went to the kibbutzim, documenting the life there. He documented building construction works. He uh, documented industrial uh, sites. Among others, the creation of the Tel Aviv port, where he made uh, several photographs, but organized them in photomontages, which are quite interesting. This was between 1934, the moment he arrived, until 1950. In 1950, he decided that he would go back to his first love, which was Spain. And then he moved to Tzfat. He bought a house there. He joined the artist community of Tzfat and he stayed there, actually, until the end of his life, for uh, another 40 years. The very different stages in his life are very interesting, but also typical of a modernist mind that would not stand still, but evaluate all the time in his vision, in his thought, and in his artistic practice. One thing I can mention to you, um, 
you know, we've spoken about him having uh, three different names. Briefly, when he got to uh, Palestine, he actually changed his name yet to another name, which is the Hebrew word Ankorion, which is a literal translation of his original name, which means Little Sparrow. Right. Well, this was for a very brief period because he chose the word Ankorion. But at the time, there was another man called Ankorion, and he said, there couldn't be two of us. <laughs> so he decided to change it to Ravid. Ankorion was actually the Hebrew translation of Borovetsky. If we look at what um, have been um, expositions of, uh, of his work, you just mentioned the third book that never really got published was uh, a book called uh, Sicontra. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, which is, um, but it's quite a, a fascinating layout. His kind of modernist, avant-garde approach to art was expressed in the way this book was um, published. I believe this was actually exhibited at the Fondation Only Cartier Bresson in Paris in 2012. Right. And it is now at the Pompidou as part of the exhibition. Actually, the Pompidou acquired it, the, the entire set. All right, okay. The graphic design of his books, from the very first one of the Vilnius Ghetto book and the Paris book and Sikont, the third one, were all done by him. Because at the Bauhaus, among others, he also studied graphic design with the best possible teachers like Baholinaj. And then he was extremely precise in the way he wanted his books uh, look like. The Vilnius book is actually, I would say, at the top of the avant-garde of the time because to take uh, such a subject of Jewish life in the ghetto, but with a uh, graphic design that was totally against what a documentary book would be, is uh, quite a miracle. The same, the Paris book that was published the same year also uh, designed by him, and naturally Seacorn that you have seen uh, was also, the graphic design is uh, amazing. He was a, a true artist in every possible field he touched on. From graphic design to photography, to drawing, to painting, the way he actually organized his life. I don't know whether you want to go through one particular set of images which are on your archive page. So the photo montage from the Palestine years. Right. Are you able to uh, talk us through those images? I can, I can send you more photo montages from the Palestine years. I have a few more. But do you want to describe, uh, as we're speaking, what are the photographs that uh, you've included there? What, what are the subjects? His work in Palestine covered many different aspects of life in the country. Now, he started making photo montages in Paris. And then when it came to describing life in Palestine, he also used many photo montages, like, for instance, there is one of a building site but in the background, we see the Tower of David in Jerusalem, even though the building site is in Tel Aviv, which is very interesting. There is another one of construction workers 
among a background of uh, an Arab village. Yes. Uh, there is another one uh, of a very interesting, and actually it was a strike of genius, that of a man sewing uh, in the field, but underneath there are two little photographs of the Homau Migdal, the uh, fence and the tower of the kibbutzim that were being built at the time. There are so many, uh, some of the uh, photo montages joined together are uh, agricultural sites and construction sites, which have no connection in reality, but he put them together to illustrate the, I would say, the, uh, the forces working in Palestine at the time. And we are speaking of all the periods before 1948. The life in the kibbutz was also very important for him because already in Europe, he was documenting all the Hafshara movement with a series of uh, very important photographs, the summer camps they had over there. And it's interesting that it one, in one of the summer camps, he also met Beryl Katzenelson. So, uh, you know, it all revol evolves around the Zionist movement in Europe, and then uh, after that in, uh, in Palestine, and finally in Israel. His life, the major part of his work, was made in Palestine, even though the important development in his artistic life took place in Paris. But he imported the European vision to art and photography in Palestine from 1934 on. Unfortunately, he didn't really leave much of an impact on photography in Palestine, like later photographers who came uh, also in the 1930s and uh, opened shops mostly in Tel Aviv, and somehow were uh, to some extent influential in the development of photography in Palestine, and then later on in Israel. Because all those uh, photographers who came from the 1930s of special left Europe, mostly Germany, they immediately created their own photographers' association and so on. And Moiver was never part of it. We don't know what the reason was, but he must have had the, his own reasons uh, for that. He was working mostly, as I said, with the Zionist institutions uh, in the country. Therefore, uh, was maybe too busy creating the propaganda uh, photographs for those institutions rather than uh, being a commercial photographer like all the others who yes. often shop. Yes. Now, looking uh, through the developments of, um, of exhibitions, as I was saying before, uh, I think you were you creating the exhibition that took place in the Haifa Museum in, in 2015? Was that something that you were involved with? Yes, I, I curated the exhibition in Haifa in uh, 2015, uh, but it was part of a uh, many exhibitions that uh, were uh, around the uh, the theme of place. Changing perspective, I think, was the theme I've seen. Yes, yeah. and so uh, there were about 20 photographs by Moiver with a text, small text I wrote for it, but it was part of a very large uh, set of uh, exhibitions at the Haifa Museum. But on, in 2019, we had a major retrospective of his work already in Vilnius 
at the National Gallery of Art in Vilnius, which was, in fact, the first exhibition he ever had, a comprehensive exhibition in his life or after that. That was very important with, a, with an important catalog and facsimile of the uh, Vilnius book that was really breaking through the incognito life of uh, Moivert, especially uh, bringing him back to his uh, native uh, town was quite important. And then, of course, we were working also parallelly with the uh, Pompidou, the result of the exhibition that, and I must say, they made a wonderful job. It covers every possible aspect of his artistic creation. And with a lot of documentation, uh, the several publications he, uh, he made in Palestine, especially uh, for the uh, Jewish agency, the Masada publication, there were so many. He was so very much involved in the, uh, the publication world in, in Palestine, using his photographs, using other people's uh, imagery, but with a very specific goal that was really promoting Zionism and promoting life in Palestine at the time. I can understand that after 1948, 1950, he decided to stop all this activity and then move back to painting, which was his first one. This exhibition of the uh, Pompidou uh, is going to travel after that to be in Warsaw later this year. And yes. it will be uh, in Israel, in Tel Aviv. It'll start in March next year. So anybody who's listening to this show who will be in Israel between March and July next year will be able to catch this uh, extraordinary exhibition. Yes. And then, well, with the exhibition in Tel Aviv, we will make a few changes because we want to add more material from his Palestine years, okay. which was only a small section. In the Pompidou exhibition, it will be even more important for the local Israeli public. We don't know yet if there will be a publication. Right now, there is a French catalog from the Pompidou. The English version is in the works and will be ready in, about, in a couple of months. The trouble with the catalog is that it weighs a few kilos, doesn't it, Nissan? Yes, <laughs> yes. It's big, it's heavy. But it's beautifully done, lots of articles in it, lots of essays concerning Moiver, modernism, uh, and all the aspects of uh, his, uh, his creative work and life. I wanted to just mention, uh, when we talked about exhibitions, uh, we didn't mention the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which has had some exhibitions which go back quite a bit, uh, because the very first exhibition that I can see that was, was there goes back to uh, 1939, which is the first exhibition. Actually, it wasn't at the Jerusalem Museum yet. It was at an art gallery in Tel Aviv in 1939. Do you know anything about that exhibition, which was a solo exhibition of Moshe Raviv? No, we have no record of that. That's interesting. Yeah, well, it's, no, it's, it's noted on the uh, uh, website for the Israel uh, Museum. I don't know where they got the information, but I have to check on that. That's interesting. And uh, then because it says, then it says that the first exhibition actually at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem was in 1969 of Jewish Vilna in the 1920s. Because at the Israel Museum, it was just about the Vilnius uh, photographs. 
Yes, just about that. It was just that. That was before my time at the museums. I wasn't involved in that. Yes, I understand. Now, these books that you, you've mentioned that are so seminal in, uh, in photography, how many, how many copies of these books are, are available in circulation still? There are not too many of them. The Vinna Ghetto book could be found because it was published in three languages, English, Hebrew, and German. There were quite a few copies of it that were, were circulating. The Paris book is rare because after it was published, and uh, there was a flood in one of the storage areas, and then most of it was destroyed. So the ones that were sold are quite rare. They must be, but still, at least several hundred in public institutions or in private hands. If you can find one in good condition, it's really quite a miracle. Not very often uh, we can find it. And then the third one, of course, we know that never... There was a facsimile publication that was made of sequence in Germany, but it was not the original. Uh, it was made using the original mock-up that Ravir Vorovetic or Moiver designed at the time. Maybe at some point we will uh, republish it. We are trying to decide on that. But in any case, we are also... Uh, what was interesting, while he was in fact in his house working as a painter, Raviv wrote his memoir. And we have a huge stack of pages typewritten where he recalls his, uh, his life in Europe, in Vilnius, and then uh, in uh, Palestine. What's unfortunate is that he never mentioned anybody by name. So we have only initials. He said, I met M or I met B, there are no names, and we have to try and guess who were those people were. There are quite a few mysteries. How come from Moishe Borovejcik, he became Moiver? We know exactly why. Because when his Vilnius book was published on his original name, Borovejcik, but the Paris book, which was an art book, he was just about to publish it, his very good friend at the time, André Malraux, later to become Minister of uh, Culture uh, in France, said, well, listen, Moshe Vorovejcik doesn't sound very artistic, so you should try to find another name. He decided to go for Moiver. Was it because he met Man Ray? We don't know. But we know that they were frequenting the same cafes in Paris. It's a possibility. At some point, we do want to publish his memoirs, because they are important for the art world, for the society in Palestine and Israel. He was an important figure that was forgotten. And so we have to bring him back to the consciousness of the art world in general, and the Pompidou exhibition has done it. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. <laughs>